Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. It's a bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, D. It is Friday, but you're hearing this. It could be Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's the podcast world, folks. And uh, uh, so we have a bonus uh, uh, interview. It could be Thanksgiving right now. It could be Thanksgiving. If you're listening to this. You enjoying your Thanksgiving meal, guys? Yes, it's delicious. Uh, Anyway, uh, a good friend of the show, uh, Beth, uh, sent me an email and said, Ben, I think you should take the deep dive on health care issues. Health care issues are pivotal for the Democrats to capture the White House uh, and hold on to Congress and take the Senate. And just as important, if not more important, health care issues are pivotal to Americans because we don't have health care in this country for millions and millions of Americans. We're like, to quote Bernie Sanders, indentured servants to our jobs. We have to keep a job no matter how much we hate it if it has a health care thing. So it's probably not a good idea for civilization as we know it to continue with the healthcare system we have in this country. So I said, Beth, you're absolutely correct. And as an expert, I have brought in Neil Muhammad, who is, among other things, former congressional candidate in the 16th Congressional District, a a hospital consultant in his day job, and to show you how smart he is, he was a contestant on Jeopardy. So he brings a lot of different things to the Ben Jarofsky show. Neil, thanks for coming to the show. Fellas, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's take it one by one. Before we go in uh, to uh, the world of healthcare care and, and the various options that exist and the Democratic po- uh, views of the different candidates, help people understand this issue, talk a little bit about yourself. You ran for Congress uh, last cycle, March of 2018. Is that correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. You're running against Adam Kinzinger in the 16th Congressional District? Yep. He's been our incumbent for, I guess, going on five terms now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what motivated you to run? It was first time running for office, you ran for Congress. You went right to the top. <laughs> it was. I, I'm an optimist, I guess. No, I mean, what? What? <laughs> among other things, and, and healthcare was at the top of the list, among other things, what drove me to run wasn't just Donald Trump's victory in 2016, though I guess, you know, for a lot of us, I mean, candidates, whether first time or not, that was kind of the jumping off point. Um, as bad as I felt, the day after that election. I also remember how I felt in the two or three or four or six weeks going into the election. And um, even without knowing what the result was going to be, I had a lot of frustrations with you know our party, how it was organized, where it was working, and more importantly, where it wasn't working. And we know now all these horror stories about, you know, didn't want to campaign here, turning door knockers away and so on. But um, that that fundamental, and I think in the in the view of a lot of voters, a very reasonable distinction between the two candidates in that election was that we had one candidate, candidate who ended up winning, whose message kind of distilled to um, things are screwed up and the system doesn't work and we're all losing out here. And the other candidate, the one who lost, I think not coincidentally, you could distill that message to the system works, everything's gonna be okay, everything works okay for most people. And I know where I grew up, 
DeKalb um, and a lot of places, a lot of other corners of the 16th Congressional District, that former message is a heck of a lot closer to the truth than the latter message. So I'd had that kind of knocking around my head. Um, I'd had the fact that we hadn't had, uh, a couple of people tried to their credit, but we hadn't had a professional, well-funded um, congressional campaign in the 16th, basically since the last census, mm-hmm. which is interesting because among my many other hats, I used to be a professor of political science. And so when I started that whole um, uh, adventure, if you want to call it that, I, I went to the data. And if you take the counties and the precincts and all the area that currently is within the 16 as it exists today, and you look at how those same counties and precincts and what have you voted in 2008, President Obama won that district by three points. Hmm. And then the Democratic incumbent lost in 2010, and then zilch, nothing. Despite the fact that again, the President Obama won that district by three points. So, Wait, now uh, uh, make, make sure I understand you. Yeah. President Obama won that uh, by three points in 2008. Correct. But not 2012. Correct. And he lost it in 2012 to Mitt Romney? Yes. Okay. So something had already fundamentally changed uh, between 2008 and 2012. Did uh, Hillary Clinton lose it by more uh, in 2016 than Barack Obama had lost in 2012? Yeah, so Hillary lost in 2016 by 17 points. Mm. But again, yeah, things are, well, clearly we're, gonna, we're trending in the wrong direction. So but. in eight years, it went from three points uh, for the Democrats to 17 points against the Democrats. Correct. And yes, people moving in and out of the district. Yes, people's attitudes change a little bit over time, but they don't change by 20 points. What happens to see a 20 point swing is that a lot of people stopped voting. And in 2016 in particular, a lot of folks started voting. Um, and that can only happen to, you know, to produce that largest swing if one side's not showing up. And, and that was the story of the 16th, and that was the story of, I think, a lot of, a lot of places across the country, but especially in the upper Midwest. So you, uh, when you view the, the lessons to be learned from 2016, uh, there are those people uh, who say that uh, it was Donald Trump's ability uh, to get Obama voters to flip uh, was the lesson. And other people say, it was the Democrats' inability to get their voters out. So it was the turnout mm-hmm. was the main issue. Is that, is that how you view the world? Yeah, and I think what gets, I mean, you're right about the conventional wisdom there. I think what gets lost in the way a lot of things people think about politics, and this is true among you know, people who work for political parties whose job it is to think about politics, your choice as a voter is not between, let's you know, simplify a little bit, it's not between two political parties, you know, blue versus red. You have really have three options. You have blue, red, or stay at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I assume you guys vote. Even if you're a committed public citizen, voting's kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. You've got to get off work. You don't have any sick time. You, and we'll talk about the sick time stuff in a second. Um, you you got to get in the car. You, you know, you've got to give up a good chunk of your day. And for a lot of folks, that is a real sacrifice. I would suggest for most folks. Well, I would argue, based on what you just said, that it's not three options. It's really two options. Um, if you stay at home, you're effectively voting for red because, in my humble opinion, and please disagree with me if you uh, do, uh, the Republican Party's platform uh, is, 
how do I put this, is opposed by the vast majority of people in this country. If you just look at like a voter uh, uh, surveys, people's attitudes toward, let's say, uh, income distribution or taxation, more people would say they want progressive taxation. And yet the Republicans were able to ram through last year, Neil, uh, a regressive tax plan. And they can only do that if people who believe in a progressive income tax do not vote. Absolutely right. The, the one thing I'll push back on there is that I think that's, that is overestimating, and I mean this in the best possible way, I think that is overestimating how much most people actually think and process and reflect on politics. And so if you, if you ask them that question, if you say, are, are, are rich people taxed too little in this country and everyone else is taxed too much? Vast majorities of people say yes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that everyone should have a right to, to health insurance? Yes, the absolutely overwhelming majority says yes. But in most people's day-to-day lives, and again, this is not, I do not mean this to sound critical one bit. In most people's day-to-day lives, there are other things going on than following politics. <laughs> you are working more hours yeah. for less money. You are dropping your kids off at yeah. school. You are trying to get them fed. You are, you know, this, this, that, and the other. So the amount of time, this has actually been, don't ask me to quote chapter and verse to you, but this has actually been shown in the research. The amount of time, you know, in a given week, number of hours, number of minutes, folks actually have to think about this stuff as vitally important as it is, mm-hmm. minuscule. And it's not their fault, uh, I, and that's and that's uh, that's the caveat I would, I, would, I would give to you. It's not that people, plenty of people don't care about politics. It's not that people in the majority don't care, or, or somehow you know they're they're bad people, or you know I'd love for them to be more engaged for all the reasons you suggested, Ben. Mm-hmm. But um, in a world of competing priorities, um, it's it's not near the top. Nor frankly, you know. <laughs> If everything were working okay, nor should nor should it be. Speaking of competing priorities, we'll get into your participation in Jeopardy before we take the deep dive uh, in uh, into healthcare. Because one of the things that is perhaps diverting people's attention from uh, political issues like progressive taxation is je- watching Jeopardy on TV. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, but before we do that, so just to finish up with the story, so you ran. Uh, you're a resident of DeKalb. You went. Uh, a native of DeKalb, that's your hometown, and uh, you finished second in the Democratic uh, primary to Sarah Dady. That's correct. Not bad for a rookie running his first time. We were all rookies, which actually made it a really interesting race. That is correct. Sarah um, Dady is a rookie too. Yeah, and that was kind of you know, uh, folks working my campaign actually now use this as not a was a cautionary tale. Um, in thinking about what happened in 2018, though, you have a district like ours that had in 2012-24 we had two candidates in three years let's say uh, i'm butchering the timeline there a little bit um folks who did their best but you know we're not sort of do we're not resourced to, to to be as competitive as one could be against somebody like adam kinzinger and then you go a cycle without anybody there's nobody on the ballot in 2016 mm-hmm. and then you flash forward another two years and not only is somebody running but four people are yeah. running i went to um I was invited to participate in a conference at MIT a couple of months ago that was sort of about that process. There was a whole bunch of you know us washed up has-beens, recovering candidates, and um, it was wild because I you know I've got my theories about why a Democrat can do perfectly fine in the 16th district, some which I hinted at a few minutes ago. Um, but of course, it's tough sledding. It's not you know it's not pro-democratic territory necessarily, but. Um, I met people from all across the country who kind of went through an analogous process, and they ran in districts that were, you know, the um, 
Cook partisan voter index, you know, this district is plus five Republican or plus seven Democrat. It's kind of a shorthand people use. There were people running in districts where the Republican partisanship advantage was like 30 or 35. Mm. Um, in the 16th, we were, I think, like plus six or seven by that metric. And then with that kind of blowout in 2016, we went to like plus 10 or 11 maybe. But three times as, as Republican districts in the Deep South and wherever, they had active candidates who were actually putting yeah. the pretty sophisticated operations. So just this, um, just this well of untapped talent and untapped potential that even in, you know, in districts like ours where the Democrat didn't do so well in the general. I mean, that's, I, I think that is a hopeful thing. Are you going to run again? And, uh, I, I, I don't have any plans to. And yeah. uh, so do you know if anybody's going to run? You're not going to give it. Are we going to revert back to what it was? <laughs> like we were feast or famine in the 16th. It's tough. You know, I, 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 I can't speak for Sarah or anyone else. I mean, I can say that I knew what I was getting into. I knew that. There's an individual for, who's working for the uh, DCCC that left as I was coming in. Kitty Curry. Yeah. I knew that no one from the DCCC was going to give a crap about this race. I yeah. knew that we were not going to get anyone's list of you know people flying in to do fundraisers for us. So, um, you know, I, I knew what we were getting into, but at the same time, um, you know, one again, I can't speak for Sarah's campaign that it was so hard, even after putting in the work and showing the progress and showing the metrics um, to get folks involved or folks interested nationally. Um, uh, thinking about going through that, let's strike up the band, sort of, you know, hoist ourselves up by our, our by our bootstraps. Um, it's tough, at least for me. It's tough to imagine doing that again without, you know, a little bit more outside interest than we had last time. It's yeah. a, it's your, um, you know, I I to the Jeopardy thing we we're talking about before we got on the air. I started this. Started doing my homework the day after the election, basically, but I started running in March of 17. The primary is March of 18. We're about right. We, we are actually where you, you should be already running if you're going to yeah. run it. Because the, the primary is March of 2020. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, the one big difference between this cycle and that cycle is that all eyes are on um, Trump and the presidency mm -hmm. to a certain degree. You are we're, we're, we're sort of a proxy battle for the, the Trump was not on the ticket in sure. 2018. So people could fight him out on a congressional level. And now he is on the ticket. Uh, and uh, we'll, so we'll get to that main uh, issue, but real briefly. So you went, you, you were on Jeopardy. Uh, and I think I saw you tweeted this out. You, you said second in Jeopardy, second in the 16th congressional district, but first in your hearts or something like that. <laughs> Wasn't that the line you yeah. used or something? Uh, you came in second, huh? I did. It was 2018 was a good year for second place finishes. Yeah, that's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so what was the question that tripped you up? Um, so there was a couple. So there was a, in this, uh, it was, you remember Cheers? Yeah. Well, everybody knows Please your don't name. Sing. Oh, sorry. Thank you. So <laughs> there's, there's an episode where Cliff the mailman gets on Jeopardy and yeah. at one point he gets a category like famous postmasters general <laughs> and his eyes just sort of light up. Yeah. There was a, um, there's a category that was video game themed where my eyes got like dinner plates and I thought, oh, this is going to be a layup. Yeah. Um, missed a couple of those. There was one about, um, gosh, what was it? It was Catholic religious rights and relatively uh, from Dr. Muhammad's perspective, relatively uh, obscure one. So I didn't do so out on that one. And then the final Jeopardy clue. And I did, I've never watched the episode cause I'm actually still 
that upset that I didn't win. But um, the final Jeopardy clue was a pretty easy one about Shakespeare. And it was something like, um, and it had a tell in the clue, it was like, uh, thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> appropriately enough, this one of Shakespeare's play uses the word moon more than any others. Romeo about? and Juliet. Wrong. Oh. <laughs> Dennis, do you want to try? Yeah. Oh, no. I, 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 <laughs> no clue. Hamlet. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> so the answer, or I should say the response in the form of a question. Yes. Then, what what is? is a Midsummer Night's Dream? Because uh, the plot of that play is that the moon comes out and people go psycho. And wow. So I knew that I knew okay. it. But more importantly, I knew that the woman two places to my left, or right my right, rather, knew it too. And she had enough money to cover, I was tied for second. Both me and the second uh, person I was tied with had less than half of the woman in front. Like, we were both on 9,600, and she was on, I don't know, about 18,000, whatever it was. So we knew, I knew, and I'm sure the other person knew too, that she had to get it wrong, essentially, because she had enough to cover us, right? Um, so, I maxed out about everything, and the clue comes. I feel this momentary sort of flash of, of, of hope because I knew I knew the right answer. I was like, well, then she's going to get it right, too, because there's no way this is hard enough for her not to get it. And so I'm, I'm sure, again, I haven't seen the footage. I'm just kind of standing there with my arms crossed, looking at my shoes, being a little surly. Um, that, that clip, the Jeopardy theme song, is exactly 30 seconds long. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I spent 24 of those seconds just like, get me out of here. <laughs> oh, man, so close. And you ever see the Honeymooners? By the way, you alluded to the, the Cheers show. Uh -huh. The Honeymooners way before your time. I don't know if you ever saw it on repeat. The no. Honeymooners. You never heard of it? It's a TV I know, show. It, it, anyway, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Ralph Cranden is training for the equivalent of Jeopardy of his day. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, he, he, he screws up because he doesn't know the song Swanee. Uh, anyway, I can't believe I still remember that after all this. It's very funny. All right, let's get down to business, Neil. Uh, and um, we're going to deal with the issue of the day for the Democrats. And my humble opinion, as I began, is health care. Uh, before we um, began this interview, we have there's basically four choices, if you will, that uh, voters have on the issue of health care, what we should do with health care. And I will now list the four. We'll take them point by point. Number one. Um. <laughs> Poor guy is breaking out in hives just hearing it. Just He's having a flashback. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, post traumatic stress disorder from Jeopardy. I have not watched, not only did I not watch my own episode, I have not watched a single episode since I was on. Yeah. I, uh, so again, um, thank you. Keep playing. Yeah, we're going to help playing. you. We're going to cure it today. <laughs> yeah. We're here to help you at this. We're, we're going to get all immersion this. therapy. And if it doesn't work, we'll get you health care uh, to deal with it. Uh, we'll get, uh, so, or we'll at least try to get you a gig on Wheel of Fortune or something. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's easier. Something more my speed, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, category number one uh, is uh, make things worse. You can you always make it worse. Uh, that is sort of the Republican policy. Uh, two, do nothing. Three, public options of various forms. And, and then for the big daddy or the big mama, however you want to phrase it, single payer. Um, so let's start with category number one. Our first choice, sure. make things worse. Go ahead. Who's, who's in favor of making things worse? As near as I can tell, every Republican member of Congress mm -hmm. and our president, so that's you know, a good chunk. Um, probably not so much the health insurance companies, interestingly enough, in the following sense, which is that under the ACA, you know, they have a, a little bit of a spike in enrollment too. People are 
you know, well, we'll see in light of the Supreme Court issue, but um, under the original design of the ACA, people are mandated or at least strongly, strongly encouraged to purchase health insurance. And um, for some people, people um, below 200% of the federal poverty line, that's usually Medicaid, but for everyone else, it's, um, you know, if they don't get it from their employer, it's something on a either state-based or national-based exchange. Um, the, the, so from that perspective, I can't quite figure it out. I'm not sure who the lobby is exactly, because at least initially insurers did pretty well, um, most insurers, I should say, with the ACA. Certainly most hospitals, at least in the short term, did better with the ACA, because now, um, especially in blue states that expanded Medicaid, they now have less charity or indigent care in their books. A big problem with healthcare pricing in this country is that um, if you are not going to just let people die in the street, they're going to show up in the emergency room, they're going to show up at a hospital eventually, what do you do to cover that cost of care? Well, implicitly, it gets, it gets subsidized by everybody else who shows up and pays a slightly higher rate. Um, but it's telling, I think, that despite all that, Republicans are so dead set on getting rid of things like, you know, even things that are popular, like the uh, prohibition against discrimination on the, on the basis of pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that came up famously um, uh, in fall of 17 with the standoff with McCain on the Senate floor and, and, and so on. They, they, they reached that high water mark, it comes back a little bit. But even as recently as this week, there's been another bill introduced, as I understand it, specifically targeting that pre-existing condition exclusion. And so, um, and there's a, a the a challenge to Obama. You call it a- ACA. That's the correct thing. Affordable Care Act. I, I always call it Obamacare because I think symbolically that's the more important name for the way it's played out politically. We can get into that. Uh, sure. But, uh, but uh, the, the challenge, I think, was a judge ruling in Texas. I want to say, uh, which that the the Trump administration may join that challenge, which is working its way to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. would strike. The the provision that it requires uh, pre existing care to be honored. Yeah, it's a um, it's a multi multi front battle if you want to call it that. There's the attacks on the pre existing con- uh, condition exclusion, which certainly insurers want that because the whole ins- private insurance business model, of course, is to take your money and then not pay for anyone's health care. Yeah. That's their kind of their ideal world. Um, <laughs> there are all the state cases. Um, Medicaid work requirements or getting yeah. other Medicare waivers from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid in D.C. to allow things, yeah, like work requirements, like reducing benefits, essentially. Or, or and, uh, making people pay something if they don't have health care. Make pay a fine or a fee if you don't have a health care plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, these mm-hmm. are all, uh, the Republicans argue these are unconstitutional. All right, please explain to me before we leave. Uh, make things worse. So in other words, you make things worse by dis, uh, def, uh, undercutting uh, Obamacare in the courts or do it the legislatively as Trump tried to do in 2017. Was it already 2017, that vote? Yeah, where John actually, McCain came, wow. but wow, man, time is flying. <laughs> uh, and uh, so you make things worse. I do not and will never understand why the Republicans, other than blind hatred for anything Obama, uh, would pursue a policy that is so at odds with what American voters want. I think we'd all, certainly in this room, and most people listening to this podcast would probably be surprised just how far blind hate of Barack Obama will get you in Republican circles. I don't think we can. I don't think we can dismiss that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think the other thing, and this is me, you know, pulling up for a Steph Curry 45 foot three pointer. <laughs> oh, basketball I fan. Ton, I don't, this, this is just my hunch. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think a lot of this actually comes from this movement in conservative evangelical Christianity around sort of the, the prosperity gospel, the idea that um, if you got yours, not only do you got yours, but you got yours because you deserve it. And if you don't got yours, you don't have yours because you don't deserve it on some. And I think in practice, this is, you know, not surprisingly, it's the United States after all, mainly racially motivated. But um, I think that's a big part of it. Wow. Well, that's what they feel until they don't got it. Then suddenly when they don't got it, it's an extenuating circumstance. Well, and let me, I'll, I'll make one other kind of random free thought association in my head. So a couple of years ago, I read this great book called um, Strangers in Their Own Land. And it's a book by a woman who's a sociologist, the University of California named Arlene Hochschild. And what she did was spend a bunch of time um, interviewing, I mean, really just interviewing folks who live in Louisiana, especially around all these, you know, petrochemical, you know, like season one of True Detective, all these soil plants and stuff. Yeah, I saw um, that too. <laughs> you know, leukemia rates are through the yeah. roof and she talks to these people like, listen, why do you oppose environmental regulation? Yeah. Because your kid has leukemia because you're living next to this plant that's mm -hmm. dumping God knows what into the groundwater. And they get all that. They're not dumb. They just, they just sort of rationalize it in a way. And I think there's a certain amount of rationalizing or... Um, I don't know, Munchausen syndrome or something. I think people know that they're getting screwed, but I think not all of them, but I think a substantial minority sort of accept that as their life and lot, a lot in life, excuse me, um, almost. They, they sort of think this is where I am. If I work harder or if I'm more virtuous, I'll get out of it. And it would somehow be wrong or cheating for me to accept a hand up to get. All right, I can buy that theory uh, if you're preventing people from getting health care, but in the case of Obamacare, uh, Congress, the Democrats in Congress, tag team with the Democrat in the White House mm -hmm. over the vociferous opposition of Republicans everywhere to give people something. Mm -hmm. They gave them something concrete. Yeah. So once you give somebody something and then you take it away from them, I don't care, like you live in Louisiana, you still want to. You want to hold on what you got. And that's what I do not understand, politically speaking, about the Republicans. You're right. I think they must really hate Obama a lot, that they will give up something concrete that Obama yeah. gave them strictly because it was Obama who gave it to them. Yes. I think among... I think among Republican elected officials, people who, you know, ostensibly should know better, that's that's basically it. I think that that explains most of, of their behavior. I think when you're thinking about individual voters who are, you know, as, as liberals, we, we spend a lot of time wringing our hands around this, right? Why are folks voting in somebody else's interest? Why are they voting to put the interests of the rich above their own? Um, I think there's just a million and one reasons some of which unfortunately I think has to do with the way Obamacare was designed um, that kind of feed into that. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I think it's hard as a voter going back to what I was saying a second ago about um, the limited time that folks have to pay attention to politics. It's hard to understand that, oh, my, my premium on this Obamacare plan went up by 7% this year, but it would have gone up by 20% if it wasn't there. Yeah. I, that's true, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, I think, a tough argument to win when that's 
seven more cents on the dollar coming out of your pocket, that sort of thing. Right. Or somebody might say something completely irrational, which is get rid of Obamacare. And then when it's gotten rid of, well, hey, wait, I didn't mean get rid of the pre-existing ban. You know, wait yeah, a minute. Yeah. I just I, I, wanted, I didn't want Obamacare. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. All right, so that's the make things worse policy the Republican Party advocates. Any listeners out there, if that's what you believe in, feel free to vote for Donald Trump. I'd be fascinated to hear from you. Uh, and uh, then there's the do nothing category. What's the do nothing category? I, I guess I was a little flip when I described that. I, I, I think that there's, but but you can reduce it to that, which is that you know, and I think this is probably still the modal Democratic position in Congress, mm-hmm. which is that. Yes, the Affordable Care Act has flaws, but those flaws are fixable around the edges. And we can think about things like, um, you know, even though the ACA tried to get rid of all these junk plans, um, it is still possible to find yourself on the equivalent of a junk plan, which is, you know, a, a HTHP with a $10,000 family deductible, stuff like that. Um, you know, you can think about it at the margins doing something about the cost of prescription drugs by, you know, allowing for, you know, some minor. Um, uh, government control, or you can think about government, uh, Medicare rather, negotiating drug prices, things like that, that yes, would help. So mm-hmm. I shouldn't say do nothing, um, but but f- effectively leave the employer based group insurance market, the half or so of all Americans who get their, medic- uh, get their uh, medical coverage from their boss, leave that fundamentally intact. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, then there's that category going a little further, public options. Right. Talk about that. So there's a couple different flavors of this. They all, again, leave that employer-based group insurance market mostly intact, but they introduce this other option. Now, I think there's a couple of problems with that. So one is that a lot of these proposals, um, it's an employer side option Mm -hmm. to offer Medicaid or or there's a Center for American Progress plan that came out, Medicare for America, I think maybe six months ago, um, which would introduce a buy into Medicare. It would expand over time. So interesting. This is actually kind of clever. I think Um, newborns would be enrolled in Medicare. So over time, we're sort of like attritioning out people uh, from the private market. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the interim, if you're three of us, if you're interested in Medicare and you currently get some sort of plan from your boss, you cannot actually just decide to opt into Medicare for a number of reasons. Um, your boss can decide to put you into Medicare, which is what they're hoping will happen in practice, but that's, your, again, your boss's decision and not yours. Um, so that's, I think, one issue I have with it. Another issue is that I think in practice, um, private health insurers are really good at contriving ways to not taking care of people who are sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do worry about whether they will be able to manipulate their plans to not just shunt people into Medicare, but shunt the expensive people into Medicare. Mm-hmm. They've got a whole bunch of levers they can throw at HQ to make that happen. And kind of like the 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 the... 2A in this list of issues I've got with it is that if that happens, and I think it'd be very hard to prevent it from happening, then you know it's going to be hard to keep Medicare solvent because you have this problem with the risk pool where all the sick people are on the government plan, yep. all the healthy people are on the private market, mm-hmm. and then some jerk is going to say, "Well, look, gosh, it's not going to work. See, you know, we we had Medicare for some, and, and it didn't work, yep. so we can't change anything." Uh, Self fulfilling prophecy there, exactly. failure, yeah. So, um, so you think ultimately uh, that is not the way to go with, which leaves us with drum roll, please single payer. 
Hashtag Medicare for all. Right. Uh, Medicare for all. All right. And uh, so talk about some of the, the proposals that are out there in this in this regard. There's a couple of different versions that are they're all mostly the same. They all overlap. I mean, by 90 percent or more. So mm-hmm. both the um, sort of the original, quote unquote, or at least the, the original modern period Medicare for all plan, um, which was a bill that was introduced by. Um, former Congressman John Quanier's late 70s, and it's been sort of been knocking around since then. I might have my dates wrong, but um, and now there are sort of successor bills. One was written by or, uh, Bernie Sanders in the Senate. The other one's in the House, primarily led by um, uh, Congresswoman Pro- uh, Pramila Jaipal in mm-hmm. the rest of the Progressive Caucus in the House. Um, they all replace. So this is about fundamentally changing the structure of how we do health insurance. So rather than the sort of ticky-tack, we're going to try to make this intrinsically brutal system of private for-profit um, health insurance kind of be a little bit more palatable, or we're going to bolt on this addition in the form of some sort of public option buy-in. We're going to really restructure the market from tip to tail. So um, what they have in common is, you know, it is a truly single-payer system, like you said, Ben. So everyone's in the same plan. There's one payer. Presumably, it doesn't have to be Medicare, and actually some of the plans suggest it should be Medicaid for some sort of technical reason that I can I can get into if you're interested. But we're all going to be on one plan. That's going to be the only plan. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a key distinction between um, these proposals and how similar single-payer systems work in the rest of the world. Um, they actually explicitly outlaw private insurance. Um, wow. The Sanders bill, like the Conyers bill before it, actually also outlaws um, for-profit hospitals and providers. So rather than strictly thinking about the paperwork issue, like how does the insurance work, they go a step farther and want to get rid of um, for-profit delivery of healthcare. Um, so that's another massive wow, step. That's, it's a big um, obstacle to get over, but they, go ahead. You know, yeah. they, they, they expand <laughs> Medicare yeah. to basically cover all the things it doesn't currently cover. So that's mm-hmm. you know skilled nursing facilities, long-term care homes. Um, dental coverage, um, hearing under certain circumstances, you know, additional things that are just not part of Medicare as it's currently deployed. Um, so that's, they're all kind of like that. And there, there, there are some more details beyond that that differ between the plans, but that's what they have in common. That's what they, you know, and, and what they have in common is why they're so wildly different than the than the first three categories that we just talked so about. So these are all variations in the same theme of people uh, s- s- uh, of healthcare being paid for by our through our tax dollars. In other words, uh, we pay for all this care; it'll just be taken out of the tax dollars we already pay to the government. Correct? Isn't that the sort of the universal? You got to pay for it somehow, right? Yeah, and if there's one thing. And if Dennis really wants to, to terrorize me, you can bring this topic up while playing the Jeopardy Stinger. <laughs> it's this idea of how are you going to pay for it? Because you're already paying. We are all already paying for it. Uh, yeah. So we say that, explain that. That's Bernie. Bernie, you're. I don't know if you mean to be echoing your inner Bernie when you say that, but Bernie <laughs> has been saying that, folks, we've already been paying for it. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to stretch myself with the Bernie impression, but that's absolutely right. We are yeah. already. So something like 30, if, if I go into a hospital, one yeah. of the hospitals I work for, and we look at, oh my gosh, this place is about to, about to implode. We got to figure out how to keep the lights on. Yeah. And one of the, you happen to look at is where's, where's the money going? You realize very quickly, 
oh, just like in every other industry, any any other industry or business that provides its 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 employees with um, benefit plans, something like thirty percent of your salary can go into your health insurance without you realizing it. So yeah. what you see on your paycheck is the part you pay, but there's a whole another you know the the business cliche about everything's under the waterline and the iceberg. Another couple hundred bucks a month goes from your what is effectively your paycheck straight to the insurance company. Yeah. It never shows up on your paycheck, so everyone, no one sort of considers that. And so the idea that, um, yes, you know, you're making less money. We're people. gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, rate, you know, oh gosh, Bernie's gonna raise your taxes. Well, what, what, what is the 40, 30, 40 percent of your paycheck that you don't even get to see? Yeah. What is that if not a tax? Yeah. No, I, you're preaching to the choir, Neil. I'm with you. When Bernie says, I'm like, yay, Bernie. That's why I voted for him in 2016. Yeah. It was the first mainstream. By then he was mainstream. He, you know, he's running for president. Who was saying what was so obvious. You know, I deal with this all the time here in the local level in Chicago with the, our municipal financing and how we uh, pay for things with tax hikes that the city of Chicago tells people are not tax hikes. And they kind of fall in line and believe it. But this is a very similar thing where effectively we're making less money because money is effectively taken out of our paycheck that we don't even see to pay for our health insurance. I worked for a hospital system in North Carolina a couple of years ago and I, I reported to um, one of their VPs and this guy was from Tennessee, mm-hmm. six foot four, looked like a football player, probably was a football player. Very Tennessee. I mean, he he he. His accent was a little bit like Foghorn Leghorns. Okay. And I would go into his office. We're working on this. We're working on that. And he would just incessantly come back to his, his favorite his favorite way of describing what we're working on. Dollars is dollars is dollars. It. I don't care what you call it. You know, the, it, it, whether it's a tax or an employer paid healthcare premium. Dollars is dollars is dollars. These are dollars that we're paying into a healthcare system that still has left tens of millions of people uninsured, still just impoverishes people, terrorizes people, brutalizes people. Whether you call it a tax or not seems to me to sort of be besides the point. And we know that, you know, this is another sort of kind of frame I used when I was talking about this in my own campaign. Listen, we pay by far more than any other advanced wealthy industrialized um, country in the world, we pay like ten or eleven thousand dollars per per person, not per employee, not per earner, per person, man, woman, and child in this country, like ten or eleven thousand dollars on everything. So that's insurance, that's the point of care, that's the doctor's visit, that's the prescription drugs, whatever. If we were second or third worst in that group of countries, we'd be paying six or seven thousand dollars a year. So we're talking about four thousand dollars per person per year for going from worst to second worst. And so this idea that somehow, you know, we can't pay for it. If I take, I was thinking about this the other day. Oh, I was thinking about this during the campaign because one of the sacrifices you have to make is leaving, leaving this in my case. And I think in, um, oh, you had to other, leave your job. I had to leave my job. So I was paying into Cobra after I left my job, oh, which my. was, I and I work for, pretty big company that's publicly traded. I had a good job, made, you know, decent living. 800 bucks a month for myself to stay in that healthcare plan. So nine, close to $10,000, yeah, there you go, close to $10,000 a year. And, and so how much, was, how much were they taking out of your check of, to pay for that $800 plan when you had the job? So, well, it's the same, that's the, 
Exactly right. So if I look at my paycheck, uh-huh. also kind of funny because they told us last week their premiums are going up by 15% this year. And again, this is with the system working because yeah, I have a good working, job in right. insurance. Yeah. If I look at my paycheck and I, and I didn't know all this other crap I was just describing, and you ask me, Neil, how much are you paying for your health insurance? I look at my paycheck and it says um, health insurance, $87 a month. Yeah. No, I'm paying $87 a month. No, I'm pay- I'm already paying, even if I'm getting a paycheck every two weeks, I'm still paying that $700, $800 a month. Understand. I just don't see it. I, you don't right. see it, and that's my point. Right. My point is, Americans, uh, what you think costs you $87, in fact, costs you $800, and the fastest way to learn that is to leave your job and pay the full price yourself. And that's why I'm saying, and so since the unseen invisible write down, if you will, right. occurs on the behalf when the company just sends the money that they would ordinarily pay to you, uh, to the insurance company, you don't see it. So you think you don't pay it, uh, is part of the reason mm-hmm. why it's so infuriating. Uh, when you talk about healthcare on this one, Neil, now, all right, so here's my question to you. This gets down to something, I call it the John Lewis. I'm blaming poor John Lewis, the congressman from Georgia, mm-hmm. great civil rights leader, uh, Hillary Clinton supporter in 2016. And uh, Hillary was, when Bernie was making progress on the issue of single payer and the issue of Medicare for all, uh, Hillary had John Lewis very effectively come out and say, you can't have everything people. You have to be uh, realistic and you can't make promises that you can't keep. And um, it was very effective to have John Lewis, of all people, make this claim. And a lot of Democrats will come up to me and they've got this fatalistic, pessimistic attitude. Ben, stop talking that Bernie Sanders talk. You're never going to get it. We can't get it. We're going to lose. Insurance companies will never give it up. So just stop doing that Bernie Sanders thing and be realistic. So now, what do you say to defeat that kind of uh, worldview? I... So I found myself in the same position in my own race, and something I have never been able to figure out for myself, Ben, is knowing how hard, and I'm not hoisting myself on the cross, I don't want you to play you know, a violin for me, but knowing how hard it is to do that, to, to, to embrace public service, to be a, a leader and try to do better by our community, I do not fundamentally understand how you can walk into a room full of people or a country full of people, in, in something like John Lewis's case, who has a national audience, and tell people, here's all the things I'm not going to do. I don't get that. I, I just, I, I, you know, it's, it's, I, I hear it, I understand the words, I know what they mean, and I just, I can't process it. It's, it's, it's staggering to me. Um, so, you know, if, you, if that's the way you see the world, and I would just kind of suggest, one, you're kind of in the long, wrong line of work. Um, two, again, it's the dollars. We're already paying We're for, already it. for it. Um, so we know we can do it. I mean, imagine, right? And so one, if you got more questions about this, and we're going to get into the next couple of minutes, how long we got here. Um, a guy by the name of uh, Matt Brunig, who I followed for a long time, is a great lefty writer on all things public policy. He has a um, he started basically a left-identified leftist um, think tank, of which, shockingly, there were zero before um, he started this, called the People's Policy Project. And he gets into all the minutia of how the taxes work and the distributions and whatnot. And I mean, you can just imagine, again, taking that $700 that my, my boss is currently paying, taking it out of my boss's hands, putting it in Medicare's hands, 
it only costs them, let's say, 500 bucks to do the same thing, and we're all better off. Yeah. That That is true. And if you're not willing to accept that, or if you're pretending that we can't pay for it, even though those numbers are all absolutely true, then you got to wonder where are your priorities. And here's the, if my, if my theory about um, evangelicals and, and, and why they hate Obamacare was the sort of 35-foot jumper, Here's the 55 foot jumper. All right. Um, <laughs> You're James Harden, not Steph my, Curry. I'm looking for a bailout file on a shot that's never going to get it. But, <laughs> but something that came, uh, came away from that whole process increasingly convinced of was that, um, you know, so I'm, I, I was in a place in my life where I was able to run for Congress. I was yeah. successful enough in what I did, my background, whatever. Um, even so, when I started talking to people, including folks in this city who are big time political consultants, muckety mucks, whoever, <clears throat> of course, Democrats, yeah. um, you learn very quickly that none of them are from places like DeKalb. None of them are from places that have actually, I shouldn't say none, very few of them are from places in this country that actually have to deal with any sort of this hardship day to day. So on the one hand, I'm not casting aspersions to Hillary or, or God knows John Lewis or anybody else, but I think in general terms, it is very easy to talk yourself into the idea that, oh gosh, you know, we can't just do it yet. Sit tight, wait, we'll get back to you eventually. If you're never going to be on that side of the equation to begin with. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I have a, uh, I, I feel that the Democrats have really hurt themselves um, by cutting themselves off from something that's so obviously wanted, needed, desired by Democratic voters. I, th I think it is a form of political suicide to tell your voters, we are not going to deliver that. We know you want this. I'm trying to think of a Chicago politician who would, uh, I'm looking at a Chicago politician who happens to be in the studio right now, would tell his voters, I know you want your streets clean, but we can't clean your streets. You know what I'm but saying? Think about the stakes, though, here, right? Not to, not to diminish, not to miss, you know, Chicago public, public works, but... Um, one in four people in this country rations their own insulin because insulin has gone up like 10 times. It's gotten 10 times expensive in the last couple of years, something crazy like that. I was reading a story just the other day. So Vox, um, you know, the, the, the um, website has mm -hmm. been asking people to send in their emergency room bills. Um, they had a story of a woman whose kid got into the trash and I you know, licked something, a cleanser or something that she shouldn't have. She calls, the mom calls poison control. Poison control says, yes, you got to take your kid to the ED. This woman happened to have just been to the ED emergency room herself a couple of weeks ago. She fell or had some sort of accident, came out with a $1,200 bill. Now, half of all Americans, as we know, cannot even afford a $500 unanticipated expense. So what the heck was she going to do with the $1,200 bill that she already can't pay? Mm -hmm. wow. So she's trying to do right, as we all are, by her kid. So her and her husband get the, the six-year-old girl in the back of their car. They drive it to the emergency room. And they wait outside because they don't want to go in and risk the bill if they don't, strictly speaking, have to. But they want to be close because the nice person at Poison Control said that your kid may have a epileptic seizure of some kind if because of the thing that she might have gotten into. So these people are sitting outside in their car for overnight waiting to see if their kid has a seizure because then and only then can they really afford kids, people who love their kid, obviously. Then and only then can they even 
consider getting stuck with another huge hospital bill? And how many, so the question, I guess, really for people who think, oh gosh, we can't do it, it's too hard, it's politically difficult, it's expensive, whatever. How many of those people and how many parking lots and how many hospitals and how many cities in this country would you have to have before you're willing to do something about it? How many of these people have to suffer as it is under our current system? Because those people, shockingly enough, are not the ones doing our politics right now. All right, now uh, we're gonna close it down with this question. I'm gonna ask you to be, uh, make a prediction. Uh, And I want you to know, I want you to predict, will the Democrats go into uh, the 2020 presidential showdown with Donald Trump with a candidate who is against a single pair? Will they repeat the mistake of 2016 or will they try something a little bolder, even if it's a Joe Biden who suddenly saw the light and now supports something that he resisted all this time? Will do you think the Democrats will double down on what they did in 2016? Uh, or do you think they'll go uh, the Bernie, direct, uh, Bernie Sanders direction? Um, I, I think if you if you ask me to put money on it today, and I'll say it to my credit, I started off the story about how I felt going into the 2016 election. So I've got a friend who's a, I won't say degenerate, he likes to gamble. So he was, he was teasing me on this question going into the last election. And he found some shady site online that was giving out plus 450, so four and a half to one for Donald Trump to win. I was like, wow. I think it's more likely than that. So I put down a couple of bucks and came out in that one very narrow, specific way. Came out a winner on election night for betting on Donald Trump. You're the only one at Democratic persuasion who won on election <laughs> night then. I wasn't sure if I was gonna be able to collect, depending on what came next after it was inaugurated, but no. So I I would, if I, if I had to bet today, here's what I, I would think that either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or somebody who supports Medicare for All wins a Democratic nomination but once that happens, some rich megalomaniac like Howard Schultz also runs a, a campaign. And oh I would bet God. on <laughs> Howard Schultz or somebody with that profile peeling off a lot more people than we are probably comfortable imagining right Handing now. Handing the election to uh, Donald John Trump. Yes. Wow. If I had to bet today, all right, gloom and doom from Neil Muhammad. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's that attitude that hurts you in that jeopardy. Okay, <laughs> you better, better, more upbeat. Uh, anyway, Neil Muhammad, thank you very much for coming in one more time. He was a congressional candidate in the 16th last time around. He was on Jeopardy uh, about a what is a year ago or so, six months ago. This <laughs> is playing the song. <laughs> Uh, and he's an expert on uh, health care. This is a lot of fun breaking down the issue. It may bring you back for global warming, a uh, seminar on global warming and all the different policies there, okay? This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's Neil Muhammad. I'm Ben Jarofsky. It's a bonus feature. We got another bonus feature coming up, folks. Uh, and uh, the man's name is Ricky Hendon. So uh, that'll be another bonus feature coming up real soon. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.